Good evening. We're continuing tonight with our series from the letter to the Colossians, and our reading this evening is from chapter 2, which is on page 1183 on the Pew Bibles, and we're going to start at verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Amen. Let's just pray, shall we? Lord, we just come to you this evening. We thank you for this amazing uh, passage from your word. And we just ask you, Lord, now by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak into our lives, Lord, that we indeed might be changed, that we might become more like our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we ask this for his glory. Amen. As uh, Lindsay said at the beginning, we are in the process of going through uh, the letter to Colossians, and uh, we have a series heading, and we have weekly heading. And so I want to just spend a little bit of time talking around the series heading, Christ Reshaping 
our worldview. We live in a, in a nation which, in past centuries, the church was very good at persecuting other parts of the church. And so here in St. Andrews, as many of you will be aware, we've had uh, men of God who've been martyred for their faith, men like Patrick Hamilton, George Wishart, and others who were martyred for their faith under the uh, command, if you like, of the Roman church. Last weekend, yes, last weekend, my wife and I were down in the southwest of Scotland, and we went to the town of Wigton, and we went to the memorial to two women, uh, both by the name of Margaret, uh, Margaret Wilson and Margaret McLaughlin. These two women were martyred for their faith. They were tied to a stake which was uh, hammered into the uh, the, the shore at uh, Wigton, Solway Firth, and when the tide came in, they were both drowned. And they were martyred because they refused to take an oath to King James the Seventh or the Second, depending whether you're English or Scottish, uh, because they would only take an oath to our Lord Jesus Christ as the head of the church. And so they suffered and died for their faith. But we live today in the 21st century in a secular, almost atheist society. And what we are seeing now is Christians being persecuted by the secular society in which we live. Just last week, some of you will have probably read of a young man who was a master, doing his master's at the University of Sheffield, and he posted on his personal social media, uh, media a comment um, supporting some person in the States who was opposed to same-sex marriage, and he quoted scripture and so on. As a result of that, he has been suspended from the university and told that he is not suitable for the course he is doing. That's had an incredible piece of persecution for that young man in our nation. And so it is becoming increasingly important in our day to understand where we stand. And some of the hymns that we've sung this evening have underlined that. We stand in Christ alone. And so I want to say just a little bit about worldviews. And um, what is a worldview? Here is a sort of definition of a worldview. A worldview is meant to give a systematic explanation of those inescapable, unavoidable facts of experience accessible to all people in all cultures across all periods of history. What sort of worldviews do we have in our society today? Well, here is a worldview which is very prevalent in our society, perhaps dominant. 
This scientific materialism states that the only reality is matter. Physics alone explains the human mind. And so if this cannot be reduced, if there's anything that cannot be reduced to matter, then in one sense it doesn't exist. And so here is a comment from a Cambridge psychologist. And he says, our starting assumption as scientists ought to be that on some level, consciousness has to be an illusion. The reason is obvious. If nothing in the physical world can have the features that consciousness seems to have, then consciousness cannot exist as a thing in the physical world. That may seem obvious to him, but it doesn't really seem obvious to me. Now, that is consciousness. Here is a comment from a philosopher about free will. He stated, the impossibility of free will can be proved with complete certainty. And finally, Richard Dawkins, who was quoted this morning and who uh, graced this town with his presence last week, and who is one of the most vocal proponents of this particular worldview, states, doesn't a truly scientific, mechanistic view of the nervous system make nonsense of the idea of responsibility? So here are three eminent scientists of our day, and they're uh, making statements in support of this worldview. However, generally when advocates of this worldview are pressed, they are forced to admit to problems. And so the philosopher Strawson, in reply to a a question after he had made that statement, he says, to be honest, I can't really accept it myself. I can't really live with this fact from day to day. Can you? And so he's saying, well, this is what I'm standing for. This is what I am advocating, but I can't really believe it myself. When Richard Dawkins was asked if there was any inconsistency in his views, he replied, yeah, I sort of do see inconsistencies. But it's an inconsistency that we have to live with. Otherwise, life would be intolerable. Now, I think it was David in the first of these talks on the letter to Colossians, who quoted the first chapter of Romans. And Paul has a statement there which sums up the views of men like Dawkins and Strawson and Humphrey. He says they are suppressing the truth. In a sense, deep down in their innermost being, they know the truth, 
But in order to put forward their views, they are suppressing the truth. So in contrast to that, we need to understand that a truly Christian worldview enables us to stand up against and refute any of these worldviews. And Paul writes, uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And the challenge for us tonight and in the society in which we live is just that. Can we say with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to all those who believe. So let us turn our attention now to the heading for tonight, Facing Fear, Christ Head Over Every Power. What is fear? Fear is something that we all have had to face in our lives at one point or another. Sometimes it can be a short, momentary sensation. For some people, no doubt here, if a spider runs across the floor in the kitchen, fear, and then it's gone. Sometimes fear can be chronic and devastating. And I'm sure many of us here can relate to that. I remember uh, when we were living and working in Burundi, we got two young uh, girls who sacrificially gave up a year of their lives. Uh, They're both from America, and they came over to help us in the work we were doing in Burundi. One of them was a very ebullient, uh, outgoing girl, the other one much quieter, and the second of the girls honestly believed with all of her heart that God had brought her to Burundi into that difficult situation during the time of the genocide in order that she would die for him in that country. And she posted up on her bedroom wall a calendar with each day marked that she was going to be there for the year. When she survived a day, she put a tick in the box. And she lived the whole of that year in intense fear of what was going to happen to her. So where does fear come from? I'd like us just to turn our attention to a passage that comes just after what we, some of us were looking at this morning in the book of Genesis. And in chapter 3... This is what we read. Adam, Eve has given Adam the fruit from the tree, and Adam has taken of the fruit and eaten. It says, Their eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees. The Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, 
and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Here we have the very origin of fear. Adam has sinned, and instantly there is a sense of fear, and he hides himself from God. And when God says to him, where are you, Adam? He said, I, I'm, I've hidden myself because I was afraid and because I was naked. Now, he was naked physically, but that statement, I was naked, covers much more than just a physical nakedness. Adam realized that there was a separation in the relationship between him and God. He was naked. He was vulnerable. And that vulnerability, that breaking of that one relationship he had, brought fear. And ever since, fear has dominated the lives of men and women in our, in our world. It's interesting that we read on in chapter 9 that Adam uh, gave this fear also to the created world. I'll just read that verse because it's very interesting. Um, I think it's chapter, chapter, sorry, no, I'll, I, I can't find it immediately. But the fear is passed on to the animals and to the creation. They will live in fear of you, God says. And so the world is controlled in one sense by fear. And so we come to this wonderful passage that we are looking at tonight. And I want to just say a little bit about it and how it relates to this sense of our nakedness and our fear. Um, when we get to verse 7, it starts with these two lovely words, so then. We've spent the last three weeks looking at chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, where Paul uh, extols the supremacy, the glory, the greatness, and as Fiona talked to us about, the uniqueness of Christ. All that he is, uh, for example, in verse 15, we read, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Chapter 2, verse 3, it says, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So having extolled, having uh, expounded on the greatness and glory of Christ, Paul comes now in verse 6, and he says, so then, as a consequence of understanding the greatness of Christ, this is how we are to react. Just as if you received Christ as Lord, continue to live in him. 
some of the translations, and I've put it on the board, say, walk in him. Having received Jesus Christ as Lord, walk in him. And what does it mean to walk in Christ? Well, we are bipeds, and virtually everything we do, we do on our feet. And so I believe that verse really means that whatever we do, wherever our feet take us, wherever we are, whatever situation we find ourselves in, let's do it in Christ. Let's not do it in our own strength. Let's recognize that we are secure in Him, in Him who was described so amazingly in chapter 1. We are to walk in Him. Secondly, we are rooted in Him. What does it mean to be rooted in Christ? Some of you who know me will know that one of my favorite activities is gardening. I should have been a gardener, actually, uh, but I wasn't. Uh, but I would spend all my days, my wife will agree with this, down on my knees, pulling weeds, cleaning flower beds. That is absolute bliss for me. And gardening, uh, one of my greatest joys in gardening is propagating. That is making things grow that weren't really growing on their own before. And uh, just the other week, we had this large lavender bush. It got very woody, and we decided, we would, I decided, that we would get rid of it. But it wasn't just a matter of dig it up and put it in the bin. That would have been far too easy for me. I decided I would propagate some cuttings from this lavender bush. So 15, 20 cuttings, uh, a little bit of uh, rooting powder, some good compost, and I tended them. Some of them uh, withered and clearly died. Others, and I brought one along to show you. Here's one. Nice, healthy specimen, which is growing well. And I know that this plant has got roots. This cutting has got roots. Now, how do I know it's got roots? Well, I confirmed this with somebody in church here who knows a lot more about this than I do, with David. And until a cutting gets roots, it will not start <clears throat> to grow. Excuse me. It might look healthy, but it won't grow. Until it gets the roots, and the roots give hormones, growth hormones to the plant, and the plant grows. David tells me that the plant gives hormones to the roots. But we're looking at the plant being rooted, so we're looking at the roots, and they get these hormones up to the plant, and the plant starts to come alive, and it starts to grow. And Paul says here, having been rooted in him. So having accepted all that Paul talks about in chapter 1, these Christian saints have become rooted in Christ. 
And as they are rooted in him, they are beginning to grow. And the question for each one of us here is, are we rooted in Christ? Are we so committed to him that we are beginning to grow because of the roots that we have set in him? Now growing in him. You see, we're, we've got the roots. That's the first point. Once we have the roots, we start to grow in him. But we need to be intimately linked. We are in him, in Christ alone. We sang some beautiful songs there. We sang that lovely song, I believe in God the Father. Do we really believe in God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the power and ministry of the Holy Spirit? Do we believe in the fundamentals of the gospel? Because if we do, and if we live our lives in that, we will start to be rooted and we will start to grow. And finally, we become established in him. So this plant is still in a vulnerable state. It's just beginning to show signs of life. It's got some roots. But I need to nurture it. I need to encourage it. And hopefully by the springtime, it will be a healthy, young lavender plant. From which in the future, I may well take more cuttings and produce more plants. And that's what it's like for us as God's people. Are we rooted in him? Are we growing in him? Are we established in him? And then Paul goes on to say in um, verse 8, a warning. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow, deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than of Christ. Here's a warning to God's people in the church in Colossae. He's saying, I believe, I believe that you are walking in him. I believe that you are rooted in him. I believe that you are growing and you're established in him. But beware Beware of deceptive teaching. Beware that teaching that takes you away from the truth as it is found in Christ and in his word. And those of us who've been on the road as Christians for many years can recognize that in so many places and in so many contexts. Where somebody arises who has got some new teaching, and people are led away, and they're led to destruction. They're led to devastation. Their roots are pulled out, and they need to be nurtured back to life. And so there's a warning to each one of us here, and a warning because we are living in a society which is totally committed to destroying our Christian faith, subtly, and in different ways. And so it's an encouragement from reading this letter. It's an encouragement to each one of us. Get rooted. Get established in him and grow. 
And Paul cannot help himself after that warning because he goes on to say basically what he said in chapter 1. He's repeating it. There's only one solution, and that is Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. He said that already in chapter 1, but he's saying it again. This is what it means to be in Christ. Here's a simple example of what it means to be in Christ. We are this evening in this building, in the church in South Street. And because we're in this building, we can enjoy all the benefits that this building gives us. It gives us light. It gives us warmth. I was going to say it gives us comfort, but I'm not too sure about that. But it gives us other things. It gives us memories. I'm sure everyone here, not everyone perhaps because we have visitors, but many of us have memories that are precious from this building. We have experiences. We can remember teaching that God has spoken to us from in this building. That's what it means to be in this building. How much greater does it mean to be in Christ? We can have all the protection that he offers. We can enjoy in him all that Paul talks about in chapter 1. And we can enjoy what he says here. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, we are also in him. So we can enjoy the intimacy and the relationship with the Godhead in Christ. How amazing is that truth? What an amazing worldview we have that just throws all other worldviews out the window. There is nothing to compare with the Christian worldview. And he goes on and he says, um, in Christ you've been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. How can we be afraid if we are in the one who has all power and authority. Remember what Jesus says uh, before he's lifted into heaven? All authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore. What an amazing place to be in him. It's nice to be in this building, but how much greater to be in Christ. We can enjoy peace in him. We're told here, he has made peace by the blood of the cross. Peace, you know, is something that the world knows very little about. But for the Christian, peace is a certainty. In John 14, Jesus says, Peace I give unto you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give unto you. How can Jesus say that? He can say it because it is not conditional 
on anything that we do. It's conditional only on what he did on the cross. And so this verse says, he made peace by the blood of the cross. Later in in chapter 15, I think it is, he talks about giving them his joy. But he puts a condition there. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will know my joy. And so joy is conditional. Peace is unconditional. If we are in Christ, we have peace. Jesus made peace by the blood of the cross, a transaction between him and a holy God. And he cried from the cross, it is finished. Peace has been made by the blood of the cross. And we can know that peace in him. The writer of the Proverbs uh, had a sense of what it meant to be in Christ prophetically. Remember that verse that I'm sure you can all quote. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and they are safe. There's safety in Christ. And so I just want to encourage us tonight. It's great to be in Christ. Are you in Christ tonight? Do you know his peace? Do you know his presence? Do you know his love, his care, his protection? I know I was, I was talking to a student this morning who was in a vulnerable state. They'd just come up to university, first-year student, struggling. Turn to Jesus. Speak to him. Tell him how you're feeling. He'll come, and he'll comfort you and strengthen you. So God in Christ has once and for all dealt with the root cause of our nakedness and our fear. I just want to... uh, No, I think I'll just stop there, and we'll just look at one wonderful verse in Isaiah which talks about that. Those three men, to get back to those three men that we quoted earlier on, they were like the state that Adam was in. He was naked. He was afraid. In a sense, they're naked. They can't even believe in their own doctrine. They're vulnerable. And in a sense, there's fear. But God in Christ has dealt with all of that. And we read in Isaiah, I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. When the enemy comes and tries to sow fear in your heart. Just quote a verse like that to him. Fear is real in one sense, but Jesus Christ on the cross has defeated every power. And scripture says that perfect love 
casts out fear. What did Jesus say when he rose from the dead? Went to the disciples, fear not. Do not be afraid. Let's just pray. Father, we just come to you this evening. We thank you for the amazing work that our Lord Jesus has done on the cross for us. And we thank you, Father, for the consequence of that finished work. We thank you, Lord, that tonight we can be found secure in him. And we can begin to be rooted and established in him. We can begin to grow in him. We can grow in him, Lord, as we read his word, as we communicate with him, as we pray, as we meditate upon his word, as we allow the Holy Spirit to speak into our lives. Lord, we just pray. I want to pray tonight for everyone here tonight. And I thank you, Lord, that you know where they're at. You know their state. You know what grips them with fear. You know what troubles them. You know the anxieties. And Lord, I just pray that you would come and by your Spirit you would minister into their lives, each one, in transforming power. We thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Help us this week to live and walk in our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name.